Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Valley Beit Midrash would like to thank the Jewish Book Council for their support in bringing Rabbi Mark Halil Kunis to our community. For more information, please visit their website at www.jewishbookcouncil.org. Please enjoy the program. Come with me on an amazing, life-changing journey and begin your dance with God. My beautiful friends, as Shlomo Karbalach would love to say, who has not felt the yearning to seek God, to come closer to Him, especially in times of crisis when we feel we have nowhere else to turn? We desperately want and need to connect with God, to know we're not alone, that something, someone is up there watching over us and cares about us. This is what every soul hungers for. And the chief, prayer, chief path we have been given is prayer. Truth be told, most people have a hard time creating a meaningful prayer experience. Perhaps this is because prayer is not a function of the lips or the mind, but of the heart. Many wonder if their prayers matter, or even if... Their prayers are heard because they can't escape the, escape the feeling that no matter how hard they pray, they feel like they're talking to a wall. There's an old joke about an American Jew who goes to Israel. And he goes to the Kotel, the Western Wall, where I know many of you have been before. And that's a place for prayer. And he goes up to the, to, the, to the wall and he starts pouring out his heart to God and praying to God. And he hears a voice talking to him out of nowhere, saying to him, David, I'm really proud of you, of the Jew you have become, of the way you follow my commandments with such enthusiasm how you give of yourself to the community and to others and the charity that you do. I'm so proud of you that I'm going to grant you one wish. So the man thinks to himself, wow, God's going to grant me a wish. And he thinks about the problems in his family. Well, if I had a few million dollars, I could solve a lot of problems for myself and my children decides to not be selfish. So he says to God, Dear God, can you make peace between Israel and the Palestinians? And he hears a voice coming back at him. 
you know you're talking to a wall. <laughs> Some turn to the synagogue to find God. But we can't expect just to walk into shul and find God there because to find God in shul, we must first find him in our hearts. So how do we get there? How do we really connect with God so that our prayers move from head to heart? In its wisdom, Jewish tradition has created what only can be understood as a dance that if properly done, can lift the participant into an intimate encounter with the divine. How is Jewish prayer a dance? Well, think about it. One sits, one stands, one moves one's hands, one moves backwards and forwards, one rises up and chants and sings and maybe embraces God. Each movement is pregnant with meaning. Take it together. Jewish prayer is nothing short of an intimate dance with the Creator. You can learn how to do this dance in such a way you connect with God every time you pray. Yes, every time. My book has been written to help the beginner navigate the sea of Jewish liturgy. It's a sea. For someone who's not familiar with it, you open up a sitter, it's really hard. It looks like, the, how am I ever going to be able to find meaning here? It has also been written to help the seasoned davener, who knows the whole prayer service by heart. We all know people like that. They may know it by heart, but how many of them really feel a connection when they daven? Or are they just going buzz, 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 buzz through the whole thing? Why did I write this book? I've been teaching about prayer my whole life. I'm not, I don't come from a religious family. I come from a pretty secular Jewish family. Um, my mother was fourth generation American. My father came from Russia when he was six months old. His parents were Yiddish. And, uh, but they, they, they were three, three day a year Jews. And I found my way to Judaism and prayer became really a way of, of connecting with God. And I worked at it, and I worked at it, and worked at it, and then I began to teach it when I became a rabbi. And somewhere around 25 years ago, my students started to ask me, well, where can I read more about this? And I thought about that, because I had like every single book on prayer that was published in the, in the Jewish world, really. And then I thought to myself, after looking through my library, I said, you know, there are lots of books that tell you what the prayers mean. There are lots of books that talk about the history of the prayers. And there are lots of books that talk about the structure of the prayer service. But I didn't know any books that talk about how to connect with God, how to really dive in and feel the presence of God when you're praying. So I decided I would write about it. That was 20 years ago. Taking me a long time. So let me ask you a question. How many of you frequently pray? How many of you pray once in a while? So let me ask you, how's that working for you? Well, prayer, sleep could be a heightened spiritual experience. Don't get me talking about dreams because I'll get really off topic. But the dreams, 
The dream, when you sleep, the body rests and the soul becomes active. And in your dreams comes a message. Okay, and the question is how to interpret that message, which is written in symbolic language. But that's another topic. Huh? We'll bring you back. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, if it's not working for you as well, your current prayer experience as you would like, this book will speak to you. I remember as a little boy in Talmud Torah, I grew up in Brooklyn. Didn't most rabbis grow up in Brooklyn? <laughs> at, least, at least my age. And, and we went to Hebrew school after public school, four, four days a week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, for an hour and a half. And I had this teacher who would drill us in how to read the prayers. He even had contests with, with the prizes. Who could read the Amida or the Shema, or the, uh, or the, Shema the fastest? I gained a fluency in the prayer service, but I didn't have a clue about its significance or spiritual power. Sound familiar? It's told that the Kutzka Rebbe, Hasidic Rebbe, famous, I think it was 18th century, asked a group of, of rabbis that he that was having a meeting with, where is God to be found? It's very famous. You've probably heard this before. So after entertaining some of the responses, uh, he, he said something that was so profound and instructive. Anybody want to, want to tell me what, what he said? God is found? Where you let him in. Think about that. You have that kind of power. God can be found where you let him in. Reminds me almost, it's not part of this lecture, I'm a, an Imago couples therapist. I am AGO, look it, look it over. But one of the things we, we, we learn, and I've seen it so true, that in a certain way, you are responsible for your partner's bad behavior that really bothers you. You really... You really bring it out in them. And I won't tell you why, that's a whole nother discussion. <laughs> but, I, but the point I'm trying to make is, you have that power of controlling your partner's behavior to your own benefit. So think about, before you say something or do something you're gonna regret, think about what do you do in response to get the, 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 best, the, the best reaction for you because you have the kind of power, and you have the kind of power to bring the presence of God to bear. Because God is where you let him in. But how? How do we let God in? How do we dance with God? I've spent my entire spiritual journey, my entire life, searching for answers, and I believe I've rediscovered a path ignored in our time, mostly, to help you with proper focus on your prayers and at the same time with, 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 with uh, proper understanding to fill you with God's light. Are you skeptical? I might be. 
Listen carefully. Again, I ask you about how you currently pray. How is that working for you? Do you feel the presence of the Shekhinah, the indwelling presence of God when you pray, or have you given up on regular prayer? The need to pray is woven into the spiritual DNA of the Jew. Isaac Leib Peretz, the great Yiddish writer, tells a touching story about Beryl the tailor, a simple, pious Jew and his son who, who had just become a doctor. I'll read you from the, it's in my book, it's in the introduction. And this takes place in the shtetl, probably 19th century, well, early 20th century. The young man comes to visit Papa Beryl in the shtetl and asks Beryl, uh, and, and Beryl asks him to come to shul with him on Shabbos. Probably wants to show him off to his friends. And, and, and the young man refuses. And he says, Pop, if you knew that our neighbor, the widow, needed help, would you wait to give help until she came begging? Of course not, replies Beryl. I'd help the moment I knew her need. And the son says, well, God certainly knows when his creatures need help. He doesn't have to wait for us to come begging. True, says Beryl. But asking for God's help is not the only reason we pray. We have to praise him too. Papa says the doctor, how would you like it if someone to keep, were to keep praising you to your face all the time, saying, Beryl is a marvelous tailor. Beryl is the only tailor. Beryl is the greatest tailor. It would make me sick, said Beryl. You see, the doctor adds, God is greater and wiser than we. Do you think he needs or wants our constant praise? Beryl nods thoughtfully. You're right. Absolutely right. And then he brightens. A Jew has to daven. A Jew has to daven, doesn't he? A Jew has to daven. It's in his kishkes. It's in his guts. It's a hunger of the soul, an outpouring of the longing for God, a yearning to connect with our creator, to feel that he is there, he's watching over us, that he cares. The need to pray is also universal. Human beings are not only thinking creatures, human beings are also praying creatures. The secularization of modern society may have suppressed the need, but it's still there under the surface. Why is prayer so hard? Again, it's because prayer is not a function of the lips or the mind, but of the heart. To pray is to feel, and feelings cannot be mechanically manufactured by reading a script of prayers from the sitter. And for this reason, the Talmud implores us do not pray as if you were reading a letter. Sound familiar? A colleague once suggested that if you're having trouble learning how to pray, have this kind of conversation with your teenage child. Teenager says to you, Pa, I'm going to a party Saturday night. Oh, really? Where is it? It's in the next town. Well, how are you going to get there? Well, David is, is uh, getting a car from his, from his father. Have that kind of conversation with your child, and you'll learn how to pray. <laughs> it's told of the Sansa Rebbe that he was once asked, 
what do you do before you pray? And he thought, I pray that I might be able to pray. Think about that. Prayer is not easy for anyone, not even the sons of Rebbe. Did you ever feel that you were doing God a favor by coming to shul? I know people like that. Or when you prayed one of the prescribed prayer services at home. If you think like that, you've got to change your thinking. It's the other way around. God is doing us a favor by providing us with an opportunity, an optimal setting for an intimate encounter with him. If you have rarely, if ever, had this kind of experience in your prayers, then pay close attention. The Talmud tells us that our earliest sages would extensively prepare for an intimate prayer experience. The Talmud says, Chasidim harishonim hayushoim sha'a achat lifnei The first pious ones would, would wait one hour and pray. Just as an athlete has to warm up for, for before a game in order to be able to perform at their best. So we have to warm up a little bit before prayer especially after a, after a night's sleep or a sleepless night, to be at our best before God. So what were these first pious ones doing during that hour? Whatever it was, it was meant to prepare body and mind and soul to receive the Shekhinah, the presence of God. I remember once walking the streets of Jerusalem about 3 a.m. in the morning. I went to a wedding, and some of the weddings in, in Israel, they go really late. And, and I, I saw here and there on this street and that street, I saw a, a, a man walking, a man walking, cover, holding on, under one arm a big folio of Talmud. Some of them are like this big. And on the other, uh, under the other arm, a, a, what looked like a Talisman filling bag. After seeing half a dozen men like this, I went up to one of them and I said, what's going on? I'm seeing all these men with carrying a talus bag and a folio of talus. Is this some sort of special occasion in Jerusalem that, that you do something like this in the middle of the night? Maybe it's, 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 a, it's a special mystical experience, and I love those in the middle of the night. I've done that at the Western Wall and other special holy places. He said, no. I get up two hours before I have to daven to learn Torah for two hours. To learn Torah for two hours. He rises, he rises up every single morning to, for two hours, and it makes sense because the study of Torah can animate the soul in amazing ways. Don't believe me? See how you feel when you leave here tonight. See how you feel physically. See how you feel emotionally and spiritually. The study of Torah can animate the soul. So what better way than to prepare for prayer? So what was it with the, the, the first pious ones and the sons of Rebbe and those early morning walkers in the streets of Jerusalem? What were they trying to achieve with these elaborate preparations? They were trying to ensure that when they finally got to recite the prayer service, that it would be meaningful. 
that they would feel like they're connected to God, not just a perfunctory ritual. You see, even for the spiritual masters, having an encounter with God that's intimate and meaningful was certainly not to be taken for granted. But you might ask, if encountering God in prayer was such an arduous task for these spiritual giants, it must be an almost impossible chance for us. I include myself in that category. But let me caution you not to become too overwhelmed, not to think too little of your own spiritual potential. Remember, every single one of you is a holy soul. And with some direction, effort, and focus, every single one of you can find an encounter with God in the most intimate way through your own deep prayer and meditations. How about starting by withdrawing for just a few minutes each day from the rat race routine that we are so caught up with to set aside a specific time to be with yourself and to be with God. I know it's not easy because the whole pace of society today is against it. So this is what I suggest. It may sound strange. Take out your phone, turn to your calendar, and make an appointment with yourself. Why not? You could do it in the morning before you get up, after you get up, or in the evening before you go to sleep. We're so connected today with our smartphones and iPads and laptops and social networks and Twitter and WhatsApp and, and, and texting, it's so difficult to be alone. You go into an elevator, what do you hear in an office building? Muzak, or you see CNN on the screen. I know we have that in Atlanta and I've seen it in New York, I guess you must have it here too, right? Tell me, what's the first thing you do when you get into your car? Turn on the radio. What's the first thing you do when you get into your house? For many people, it's turn on the TV. We just have a hard time being alone with ourselves. You need to be alone with yourself. Don't hide. Whenever we have a free minute, what do people do today? Take out the phone. Yes, shut it all down. Shut it all down for a few minutes, those few minutes, to be with yourself and God at least once a day. It's interesting how I read that some of the big executives at Google just a few years ago were suggesting that you find one day a week where you shut off all your devices. <laughs> Shabbos! <laughs> it's Shabbos! Could you imagine? In the Orthodox world, it's a dirty little secret that Jewish teenagers, a lot of them, are texting on Shabbos. They just can't stop. They can't stop. We need to be able to stop. So find some time to be with yourself and God. Just shut it down. If someone would call me on the phone and my secretary would say to them, well, you know, the rabbi's busy. He's talking with someone. They would understand. But if she would say to them, you know, the rabbi's busy, He's talking to himself, or he's, he's listening to himself. They would think maybe there's a problem with the rabbi's sanity. 
And yet, just as we set aside time, fixed time to talk with others and make appointments, shouldn't we make an appointment with ourselves? If we never allow ourselves a moment to catch our breath, to think or feel or pray or just do nothing, then what kind of lives are we leading? Isaiah says it best. In sitting still and in rest shall you be saved. In sitting still and in rest shall you be saved. In quietness and serenity shall be your strength. In a world where there's so much pressure upon us to do things all the time, in a world where everyone says with Nike, just don't stand there, do something, we need to say to ourselves, just don't do something, stand there. At least enough for our souls to catch up with ourselves. And in that private time with yourself, find a moment to pour out your heart to God. Thank him for all the blessings that he showers upon you. And there are many. I don't care what your life is like. There are many. And ask him for help in all the areas of your life where you need help. There are many barriers to prayer. But for many people, they hesitate to pray because they, they think to themselves, who am I that God should listen to my prayers? And if you feel like that, I'm just a sinner. Really, I'm just a sinner. Who keeps, who's able to, to live life without sinning? No one. I don't do as much for my fellow man as I should, you may think to yourself. Nevertheless, it's a good point, by the way. But nevertheless, The sages learn from the Torah that God longs for our prayers. It's hard to think of God as as needing anything. But the sages are adamant that God longs for our prayers. In the second chapter of the Torah, God tells us that before he created the world, he had not brought rain upon the earth because there was no one to work the soil. The Talmud in Hulin elaborates and tells us this was because there was no one to recognize the goodness of God and his gift of rain and pray for it. Why did, I'll ask you a question. It's a good question, and I bet you almost none of you ever asked this question. Why did God create the world? It's a simple question, right? But it's a fundamental question. Does anything that he needs, poof, he can have it, right? Why did God create the world? Anybody have a thought about that? He was lonely. He was lonely. But can you ascribe human emotions to God? But you may have, maybe onto something that, there. Kabbalah picks that up and says, like the, says it like this. God created the world because he wanted to have an opportunity to display his goodness. What good is being good if you can't be good? And and God wanted to send someone to recognize that he was good. So God, in a sense, needs us 
has a need for us. So because there was no one to appreciate his goodness, he didn't bring rain onto the earth yet. That's what the Talmud says about that verse in the Torah. Later on in the Torah, in a few weeks we'll read it from the Torah, that where the, we are now reading the book of Shemot, where the whole Exodus experience, and after they go to Mount Sinai and they build this, 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 this mishkan, this tabernacle, this portable temple that the Jews lived in uh, or worshipped in on, on their way to the promised land and then beyond till the temple was built. The Torah says, Vasuli mikdash v'shachanti betocham. Listen as I translate it and tell me what's wrong with this, with this verse. And make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. Make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. What's wrong with this verse? What should it say? Well, that's what it's, it's, I make, it should say, make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in it. Right? That would be obvious. Why does it say among them? or among you. Uh, because God resides not so much in the sanctuary, but in the heart of every person. Unless, of course, we dispossess him. And I know of people who became so angry because of life, the way life treated them that they've dispossessed God from their hearts. But for the most of us, we, we have not dispossessed God. Most of us are desperately seeking God. And so it's important to know our tradition teaches that God also longs for our prayers. If the lengthy description of this mishkan, this tabernacle, uh, the Torah tells us the purpose of a house of God. The Torah says that they shall know that I am the Lord their God who took them out of the land of Egypt to dwell in them. I am the Lord their God. It seems to be saying that what God did to free the Jews from, from Egyptian slavery and commanding them then to build a sanctuary was to, to fulfill the divine need, which is to dwell in them. In a sense, as I've been saying, God needs our prayers. God needs to connect with us as much as we, or maybe not as much, but as well as we need to connect with him. And Nachmanides, the Ramban says, this is a deep secret. So don't think, who am I to pray? Because why should God listen to my prayers? Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much. And now back to the learning. Let me give you a word about sacred space. It's important to create a sacred space, a holy place for yourself where your prayers will be more effective. And that can be in different places. At home, I have a sacred space. Where is it? It's at my Shabbos table where I usually sit. Because at the Shabbos table, the family comes over, we have a Shabbos meal together, we make Kiddush there, we sing Zmirot, and we do this on Yantif also as well. That's my sacred space. But I have to admit, there wasn't always, there was a time when my kids were young and I couldn't find a quiet place anywhere in the house except my closet in my bedroom. 
So that was my sacred space for a while. You do what it takes, but make a sacred space. Now, and I want to suggest when you go to a synagogue to pray, to your synagogue, and if you don't have one, you should find one. It's very important to have a Jewish community, a sense of community, that you're not alone in your spiritual struggles. But anyway, find a seat, a chair, uh, whatever it is you, that they sit on in, in, in the synagogues, a bench. Find a, a place to sit and always return to that very spot when you walk into the synagogue. Because when you pray again and again and again at the same place, it becomes easier to get into an effective prayer state. Because some of the spiritual energy that you release there lingers. As the Talmud teaches, when one has a fixed place of prayer, the God of Abraham helps him. There's a psychological factor behind that as well, you know. I know the... Uh, I'm a golfer, so I love to play golf. So this, I remember a psychiatrist once telling me a golf story. There was this golfer that went into a coughing fit every time he reached the 16th hole of a certain golf course. Because one time he was there and he got very sick on that hole. Because some of that memory, that's, that memory was there. But what I'm saying to you is you create a sacred memory when you have a sacred space. And that lingers within you. Someone was asking me this afternoon about the new studies about how, how your DNA changes when, from trauma. They've done studies about that. I'm thinking your DNA also changes from doing this kind of spiritual work. And it uplifts you, brings you to a different place. Anybody here having memory problems or recall problems? I do! But I want to tell you, we do this kind of spiritual work, it really helps. It really helps. Because you find a way to connect well, some of the connections are clogged in there, but you find a way to connect that's beyond yourself. Let me talk about deep prayer. And how is it different from other kinds of prayer? Deep prayer is the kind of prayer that, that, that wells up from the deepest recess of the heart. And it can only occur when one is truly focused on prayer. Putting everything else out of the mind. That's a very heightened spiritual state when you can just eliminate, eliminate the woes, the cares, the shopping list that you have, the to-do list, uh, the different things that bother you. Just put everything out of your mind and focus. Now, if you're in a hurry, you grab an apple and you say a bracha over the apple, thanking God who created the apple, you say a prayer that has meaning, but it's not deep prayer. On the other hand, if someone you love is having serious surgery and they may not survive, and in a quiet place with tears in your eyes, you pour out your heart to God asking for him to be merciful and heal the one you love, bring them back to life. That, that's deep prayer. 
the prophet Jeremiah tells us that God says, you will call out to me, you will pray to me, and I will listen to you. You're not talking to a wall. You will seek me and you will find me if you search for me with all your heart. But you need not have a crisis in your life to be able to have a deep prayer experience and connect with God. The emotional release, the spiritual uplift that can accompany such an experience can be regularly felt by each and every one of us. How? Let's do a prayer exercise, and I'll show you. I have maybe about 10 prayer exercises in this book. And if you go to my website, you'll see the prayer exercises. And they, by the way, the website is www.dancingwithgod.com, but I spell God D-D-G-D. You know why? It's not because I'm so religious that I don't like to write out God's name. It's because someone else had that website. <laughs> but it hadn't been active for 10 years. And they wanted $1,000 for it. So I'll just be religious for this website, g <laughs> But, you know, if you, if you have a guided meditation, you can't just read it from the book and get much out of it. You have to be able to sit and be still and to have it read to you so you could have someone else read it to you. You could record it and play it back. All I have to do is go to my website and click, and, and click on exercises, and it's there. He did it a couple of times. Don't be discouraged when you do one of these prayer exercises and the gates of heaven doesn't open for you. It may not happen the first time, but try this every day for two weeks and notice how you feel physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Notice subtle changes in your life. Your attitude, the attitude of others towards you, and in general, how life treats you. And I suspect your newfound connection to God will make a profound difference. Let's do this exercise and see. And, and see. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to sit with your feet on the ground if they'll reach there. I know sometimes I have a problem with that. And, and uh, put your, your hands on, on, in your lap, on your knees. Close your eyes. Take a couple of deep breaths. Breathe in through the nose and out through the mouth. In through the nose and out through the mouth. In and out. In and out. When you breathe in, imagine yourself bathing in the light of God. And when you breathe out, breathe out all your troubles and cares. The list of things you worry about every day. Breathe in God's light and out with your troubles. In with the light and out with what's toxic inside of you. In and out. Imagine you're walking in a beautiful green field. 
Feel the warmth of the sun on your back. Smell the aromatic fragrance of the trees and the wild flowers. Hear the beautiful songs of the birds. You feel so calm and relaxed. With every step, feel more and more relaxed. Now see in front of you a beam of light six to eight feet in diameter, descending straight from heaven. It's always been there, but you never noticed. It is a light unlike anything you have ever seen, intense, yet neither burning nor threatening. The light beckons. Step into the light. Feel its warmth and embrace, like God is hugging you with his light. It feels so wonderful, so safe, so uplifting. Abide for a moment in this divine embrace. You now feel lighter and calmer, more at peace with yourself than you have ever felt before. Abide in the light for a few moments, breathing in the light and out with what's toxic within you, in and out. Now breathe in the light and let it go to every fiber of your body with its healing powers. Take a couple of minutes to thank God for all the good he has blessed you with in your life. Health, family, home, friends, teachers, job, synagogue, whatever. Abide for a moment in the light feeling so grateful. Now think of some of the challenges you face in life and ask God for his help. Say out loud with me, Hashem, help me. Say it with me now. Hashem, help me. Say it again. Hashem, help me. Say it louder. Hashem, help me. Louder. Hashem, help me. Say it with your heart. Hashem, help me. Say it from the deepest recesses of your soul. Hashem, help me. Say it again. Hashem, help me. Scream it out. Hashem, help me. Once more. Hashem, help me. Abide in the light for another moment or two, enjoying the embrace of God's light, knowing that your prayers have been heard. Notice how you feel physically, emotionally, spiritually. When you open your eyes, you will feel better and more aware than you have all day. Once more, breathe in the light and out with everything that is left that's toxic within. In and out. Now open your eyes. How did you feel? Would anyone, want, would anyone like to share? 
in your experience? I know it's kind of intimate and private, but it's also instructive. Yes. Free. Free. Out of yourself. Out of yourself, so to speak. But that was your real self was out of yourself. Anybody else? Huh? Calm. Calm. Yeah. Many feel relaxed and refreshed with a feeling of emotional release and spiritual connectedness. Did you feel more connected? Again, don't be turned off or discouraged if you did not feel much different or you didn't have an overwhelming spiritual experience. Yes, you still have a soul. But try it every day for two weeks. I promise you, you will notice a significant difference. In fact, do it every day for the rest of your life, and not only will your blood pressure go down, and they've done studies to show that is true, but you will feel that you're always walking in the presence of God. Now, if you have any children or grandchildren, if you take them to a playground and they go out and they play with, with the other children and the monkey bars and, and, the, and the seesaw or the carousel, whatever, and you're sitting down talking with some of the other parents or grandparents, and your child decides they're going to walk in the field with the other children. As long as your child can turn around and see that you're still there, they know they're okay. It's the same way for me. When I actually do an exercise like this, or another one I'm going to show you in a moment, and I can actually feel the presence of God, I know I'm okay. I know I'm okay. This next exercise, I'll just do it very briefly with you. But I want you to be able to feel, physically feel, in a very special way, God's presence. Because when you can do that, your belief in God takes on a different level. It's not that you believe. I'm just like, I believe that UGA will win tonight. <laughs> or I could believe that the Braves will win the World Series next year, or the Falcons will win the World Series, uh, the uh, Super Bowl. I, I, I believe it, but it may not happen. But if you feel it, it's real. It's real. So in the Amida, the first, how does the first blessing of the Amida end? Anybody, anybody know? Remember? Magain Abraham. Bless God, who's Baruch Atah Hashem, Magain Abraham, who's the shield of Abraham. I have two chapters on that in, in the book. And, and what does Magain mean in Hebrew? Shield. Shield means a shield. 
What this means is every one of us has a shield. A shield that protects us. We have a measurement in Hebrew called an ama. Ama, uh, you know, in English, the primary measurement is a foot, right? Because some king, that was the size of his foot, right? So what's an ama? An ama is from here to here, here to here. That's, that's an ancient measurement in the, in the Torah. So some people say it's between 18 inches, and some people say it goes up to 24 inches. And the, the Vilna Gaon uh, said in, in, like 1700, in the 1700s that it's like 22.7 inches, something like that. Somebody looked at him, where did he get that from? He did it through a meditation, it's what came to him. But now we know he's right. Why? Because the Talmud says, from the corner of that stone on the Temple Mount to the corner of that stone on the Temple Mount were a certain amount of amot. So now we have the Temple Mount. We can measure and divide and see he was right. But there's a concept in Judaism called dalit amot, four amot. Four amot. Four amot is a person's personal space. And I'm, and I'm saying according to Kabbalah, it's even deeper than that. We have a personal space that from our center... Four amot, one, two, three, that's all around. That's how big your soul is. Did you ever hear of Carillion photography? That's where they, where they, where they could photograph the, your aura. It's real. The Heart Math Institute, I have a, I have a chapter about that in here, measures uh, with electromagnetic waves that come from a person's heart. And they can measure that a certain distance away. That's your space. Your, that's, that's your soul is, extends to there. And I can prove it to you. That's your Did you ever have the experience? You're sitting down in a chair. Someone comes up behind you, doesn't make a sound, but you know they're there. Because they're in your space. And the closer you get to you, the, the more intimate that space becomes. And so when you're talking to someone, if you get in their face and talk to them, it's rude because you're intimately in their space. A Kohen's not allowed to go to a cemetery, right? Not true. He's not allowed to go within four amot of a grave. Because it has a certain, I wouldn't say uncleanly, impure, impurity to it. So that's why Kohanim, in like in my synagogue, we bury Kohanim on, on the first line of graves from the road. So they could still go on the road, stay with, you know, less than eight feet away, or more than eight feet away. It's your personal space. What if you can feel your, your soul having in, having in that space? You can feel that, that soul. And your soul is like a direct link to God. What if you can feel that? Tactically feel it. So I'll do this exercise with you. It's a short exercise and see if you can do it. But what you're going to need to find a space that you can be in where your arms can extend themselves. So you pull your chairs back or whatever you need to do, but find a space. You don't need that much space, but it'll, it'll work, okay? Just sit down. No, you do, do the sitting down. Do the sitting down. Now, I need your hands to get uh, tactically sensitive, so just rub them a little bit. And when I tell you to, not now, 
When I tell you to, I want you to close your eyes, pull your hands apart, and then pull them together slowly, slowly, slowly till you feel the slightest bit of resistance and then stop. Okay? Okay, now close your eyes. Pull your hands apart. Now pull your hands together till you feel the slightest bit of resistance, very slowly. Okay, open your eyes. You can come back to the table. What was that? You felt it, didn't you? You stopped. A stop as soon as you feel resistance, right? But you stopped because you felt something. You couldn't see it, but you felt it. It's real. So when I do that, that prayer in the morning, part of the service, and I, and I speak about God who's my shield, and I feel that shield, you know, the tactical sensation of that lasts the whole day with me. I, I could feel that I was with God, and I am with God wherever I go. And that helps me to understand and to know God. Once you have been able to connect with God through meditation and, and, and prayer, you can draw upon that meditative experience to help you pray more deeply with every prayer opportunity. Whether it's a formal service, a blessing over food, or a spontaneous outpouring of the heart and soul. You need not make every prayer 20 or 10 minute meditation. But for a moment, you can call upon that connectedness to God that you achieved in your most powerful meditations and use it as a sacred memory. I'll give you an example. I don't have really time to go into it a lot, but I have, I have about three or four chapters on, on the six words of the Shema. It's our most important prayer, right? Six words. Only six words. But there's so much to unpack and to say what these six words mean. What do you think the Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, means? I just told you in English. But the translation, what is, it, what is it teaching us? Well, obviously, the obvious thing is that God is one. What does that mean? Does it mean that he's not two? He's not three? Yeah. Hmm? Wholeness. God is one means that, well, we'll put it this way. Kabbalah has this understanding. Uh, I, I'll describe it to you this way. How many of you are writers? Okay. Did you ever create a character, and then that character takes on a mind of its own and goes to places you never anticipated? Has that ever happened to you? You are you right? <laughs> well, you talk to people who write fiction, and they'll tell you that's the case. The character exists in the mind of God. But it has its own 
will, so to speak, at times. It goes to places the writer never anticipated. But the character is not separate from God. It only exists in God's mind, but it's not God. We exist in the mind of God. And we can have our own free will and go to places God hasn't anticipated. That's one of the greatest gifts God gave us, to have our own free will. Because what good it would be for God if we were grateful to God because we were pre-programmed to be grateful. Right? So God had to give us free will. God wanted to display his goodness and so we should be grateful to experience that. So, to be one with God means really that God is everything. Everything exists in the mind of God. And that's a oneness when you feel that. It's just amazing. But, I, but besides that point, would it surprise you to learn that the real message of the six words of the Shema Yisrael, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, really is more about why bad things happen to good people. What? Doesn't seem like it has anything to do with anything. What is Shema? A statement of our faith. And what is the greatest challenge to faith? Good people suffer. And bad people seem to have it easy. called theodicy by the philosophers. Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel. Can't unpack the whole thing. I need a whole hour to do that for you right now, but I'm not going to take it because I want to watch the second half of the game. <laughs> Hashem Elokeinu, why two names of God? If you wanted to say the Shema is about God is one, hear, O Israel, God is one. Why? Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem our God, the Lord is our, the Lord our God. Because Hashem, the yud vav name of God, represents midat rachamim, merciful God. And wherever that appears in the Torah, it's, it's about God's mercy. And Elohim represents God as he appears to be the God of nature, which can sometimes be cruel with disease, hurricanes, snowstorms, whatever. And Elohim, by the way, is the, is the name of the, uh, that's used at the beginning of this Torah portion for God. Because it's also, it's, also, it's also about judgment. And judges are called Elohim in the Torah. And in this Torah portion, is talk, beginning to talk about judging Egypt and bringing on the plagues. There are times where God seems like he's merciful. Life is good. Baby is born. Fall in love. I get the job I've been looking for. And the times it seems that God is cruel. I, I got cancer. Uh, I lost my job. My wife divorced me. Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel. Israel really means one who struggles with God, but it really has five meanings. I can't unpack that for you. Hear, O Israel, you, the Israel inside you that struggles with God. God who is also, seems merciful at times and seems difficult, judgmental. Why is God judging us so? 
It's really Hashem Echad, one merciful God. That the good that happens to you in life, the, the bad that happens to you in life is a good not yet understood. So all with all of that, how do I say Shema Yisrael? Think about all of that. You can do it. You can do it. So people say Shema Yisrael in, in five seconds. I do it, counted with the other group today. With 22 seconds I say Shema Yisrael with my congregation. Shema Yisrael. So we could just briefly think about the concept in each of it. In each of them. It needs to be... You need to have a little focus and understanding. So this is what I urge for you. I urge for you to find the prayers that, that relate to you in the sitter. Don't abandon the Hebrew. Pray in English if that's your language. But find the prayers that really speak to you. Learn the Hebrew with them. Even if you have to learn it from transliterations, I have the transliterations of all the major prayers in here. You'll be able to find it. Because Hebrew has a mystical power to the language and every letter is pregnant with holiness. And it's more than a mantra. It really uplifts you when you recite it. So don't ignore the Hebrew, but make friends with, with a prayer that relates to you and you won't be able to wait till you get to it in the prayer service. How many of you watch the show Dancing with the stars. Right? How does it work? How does it work? A professional dancer frames somebody who's not a dancer. A celebrity, right? And they come in the first, the first time, and how do they look when they're dancing to celebrity? Not so great. But by the time they're finished at the end, look pretty good, don't they? Pretty professional. How are they able to get so proficient? They practice and they practice and they practice every day. If you want to dance with God, you can't leave it for the once in a while you happen to be in shul because you have to attend a bar mitzvah. Or it happens to be Rosh Hashanah. You have to make it part of your spiritual practice. And do it with what we call kavana, focus, meaning, intention, every day. And you'll be astonished at the difference this will make in your life. So I invite you with this book to come with me on an amazing life-changing journey and begin a dance with God, a dance that can last a lifetime.
Thank you. Any questions? Yes. Well, there's also two different things. First is, first of being, do I deserve that God should listen to me? The answer is no. But God wants you to pray to him. And he's merciful. Nobody deserves it. And then you see all this tragedy. How could God allow it to happen? Because as we say in the Shema, Hashem Elokeinu, the merciful God, when life looks, looks like God is merciful, and the God who seems like he's judgmental and life is hard and challenging, are really one merciful God. That with all these terrible things that happen in the world, there's really a good not yet understood. It's really hard to understand that sometimes. You can unsee through your personal life but you really can't figure out all the bad that happens in this world. A lot of it has to do, for instance, from a mystical point of view with past lives. So you see a person who's really a wonderful, the sweetest, wonderful person ever, and you see how miserable they are and how miserable their life is. And the only way you can understand that is that it's a result of what happened to them in a past life and they're making a correction in their soul with it. And if you don't believe in reincarnation, there are thousands of proofs for it. I, I could show you thousands and thousands of proofs for it. For it's, we have thousands, tens of thousands of stories. Like uh, in Israel recently, there was a, uh, a, a young kid who, uh, who was in a Druze village in the Galil. And... And he, he, he kept speaking that he lived in another village. And he wanted to go home to his other village. So they brought him there. They brought him there. He recognized the home. He knew the people in it. He said, he, he said that uh, <clears throat> he knew all the, all the names. He said, up in the attic behind such and such a place there, uh, I, I, I hid some things. For, for the family, in case I don't come back from the war. He was, he was fighting with the Israeli army in, in, uh, against Hezbollah, and he was killed. And, and they went up to the attic, and there it was. There it was. Oprah Winfrey, the big deal about her running for president, right? She had a show once about, about reincarnation. She, there, was, there was a psychiatrist. This is going back like 20 years. Uh, I, had, I have a VCR tape of it. <laughs> <laughs> I recorded it because I, I, it was so remarkable. They, they have this, uh, this psychiatrist uh, was, was, was dealing with, a, with a, a young man who had all these phobias, all these phobias. They couldn't figure out what, what, what was that. So he hypnotized him after a year, and he, and he, and he said, go back to the place, uh, the experience in your life, uh, that, that caused these phobias. So he went back to a different lifetime and he went back to a submarine that was hit and sunk and he had this name and he told about his house in Baltimore where he lived, etc. He recorded the whole thing, the video of the whole thing, this doctor videoed it. 
So they went back and they traced it. Yes, he was from, this was the first sub that was sunken in World War, World War II, and, and, and this person did exist, and, and they, took, they took him back to this, this house in Baltimore, and he recognized it. He knew all the, the names of the people in, in, on the street, and to tens of thousands of stories. It's about a lot of the terrible things that happen to other people that we know and love. We can't explain our result of past lives. What happens in the world, I will tell you, is a matter of <clears throat> free will. Free will. People have free will to do bad things. But if that happens, God's got to make it up to you. I'm serious. He's got to make it up to you or your soul. Unless you're really, really evil like Hitler and your soul is cut off, that's it. Well, and I'm thinking about people of other faiths. Are they praying to the wrong God? Hmm. I mean, is that... There's one God. And as, and as Maimonides would like to say, that Islam and Christianity came into this world to help spread the idea of one God. Even though Christianity has distorted it somewhat, but they still spread that word and then and the morality that goes along with it. Well, I just think, you know, obviously about, you know, some of these horrible things that happen in history. And I can't see how you can say they, they, they should be pardoned. No, because sometimes it happens as a matter of free will. And I was saying when it happens to you, if you get, if you get, if you get shot in a convenience store because, of, because somebody, was, somebody was shooting a machine gun outside and, and killed you, God's got to make that up to your soul because you don't have a chance to live in. Why are you here in the first place in this world? To grow a soul. That's a deep secret. God put you, your soul, in your body, in the time and place you were born, to the parents you were born to, to grow and develop your soul. And if, and if someone's free will gets in the way of that, he's got to make it up to you, bring you back or do something in the new world or whatever. I'm, it's beyond me to understand all of that. Yes? Where is the good undiscovered in that scenario? Oh, so the challenges God puts before you are good not yet understood. But the, challenge, but the challenges that you face because of someone else's free will, God's going to have to make that up to you. Okay, so you're not saying the Holocaust God, for, God forbid. Okay, it wasn't working. I, 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 God forbid. God gave the Nazis free will. Yeah, limited though. It was limited. Why Hitler went into Russia in the fall before the winter, and that was the end of the war, and it meant the Jews, Jewish people would not be destroyed because he made a promise he will not allow the Jewish people to be destroyed, but he allowed them a lot of free will. All right, thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.